the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. I'm your host, Stephen Boyce. Today, we're going to do a special episode on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, become a relevant topic in the last week or so since going on a program with Inspiring Philosophy and uh, worked with Than and Eric and spent time with Michael Jones reviewing a video done by Pelusia, which was against the Gospels being eyewitness-based. You obviously, those that follow me, know how I feel about that and therefore defend the Gospels as being eyewitness accounts. One of the things that came up was the Gospel of Matthew, probably the most difficult gospel, as I stated on this program multiple times, probably the most difficult gospel to defend as it relates to its authorship and where it goes back to. Very different from John's gospel, per se, and, and in my opinion, very difficult in comparison to Mark's gospel, which takes its roots back to the Apostle Peter. When it comes to Matthew, there's confusion on two fronts. Number one, the first confusion is what language was the original Matthew written in? Uh, the Aramaic churches are dead set on the idea that it was written originally in Aramaic. The early patristics seem to indicate to us that it was also written, particularly in that language, or at least the Hebrew dialect being Hebrew or Aramaic. On the other controversial side of that, it's not just the language barrier, but also who was the author of the gospel, Matthew. They're all alleging that it is Matthew, but if it is in a different language as it has been alleged, then how do we know which language and writer of the gospel of Matthew do we have today? Maybe there was a Matthew that wrote earlier on, but we don't know where that gospel of Matthew is or where it contains itself anymore because we have a different form of it. We have a Greek gospel of Matthew. Who put that one together? Was it later individuals, etc.? That That becomes really the issue at hand. So one of the things that I wanted to point out today in the gospel of Matthew is my view of its evolution. And I entitled the episode, The Evolution of the Gospel of Matthew, because I do believe it developed. It evolved. It was originally in one stage and it presented itself into others over time. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have quite a few statements in relation to them. I want to read a few of the church fathers. Now, I did an entire two-part episodes, part one, part two in the Gospel of Matthew, going back. This was well over a year ago now, uh, and I asked the question, are there two different Gospel of Matthew accounts? I don't want to rehash all of that, but I do want to focus on the evolution of the gospel itself, whether or not it was developed into something that we have today. Uh, what did the early patristics say that we had back then? These are things that I think we all need to examine because it makes it difficult. But I do think there's a reasonable explanation for the development and the evolution of the gospel of Matthew. The earliest statement about it would be from Papias of Heriopolis, who died around 130. Uh, he lived between, between 60 and 130 
He is a hearer of John. Uh, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, probably ordained as a bishop in Heriopolis by John. Uh, he also claims to have known other eyewitnesses, uh, being Aristion and John the Elder. Some believe John the Elder and John the Apostle are the same. I hold the position they are separate individuals. Uh, he seems to also have had correspondence with the four daughters of Philip and perhaps Philip himself, uh, allegedly that they had spent time with him in their travels going back and forth. They had apparently had stayed in the home of Papias in Heriopolis. So he was accustomed and familiar with the eyewitnesses themselves. And he had this to say, particularly about Matthew. Now, it's interesting he mentions Mark first. Mark is designated first as a gospel for the apostle Peter. Then he states, therefore, Matthew put into sayings, the Lagia sayings, in an ordered arrangement in the Hebrew dialect. Let me pause right here. One of the things that we find from the very beginning is that he has placed Matthew second, but he has also placed Matthew in a Hebrew dialect and that the works of Matthew are actually arranged in chronological order, and this is how I take it, chronological order in comparison to Mark. And we do see differences of order. The arrangements are very different from one gospel to the other. Mark is not in a particular order, but Matthew is being put in arranged order. With that being stated, he continues to say that each person interpreted it or they, they put together, and there's debate about how this should be translated. Should it be translated interpreted, or should it be in translated translate? Now, I think it should be translated. Translated them as best as they could, because the word is from the word hermeneuo, comes into the same terminology. It can be interpreted, it can be translated, uh, or exegeted, or something of that sort. But I do think that here he's particularly talking about a translation that later individuals translated the sayings the best that they could. Now, I'm going to come back to that because I have a hypothesis as to who was involved in the translation of the sayings. But note this about the earliest stages of Matthew. He seems to believe that it is a collected gospel of teachings, lagia, or sayings, quotes, statements. There's been much debate as to whether or not that could be our gospel of Matthew. Does our gospel of Matthew meet, uh, meet the criteria of the lagia? Now, I don't think it does. Here's what I believe happened. We see early transformation of this in the epistle of Jude and also in the Didache itself. The things that the churches seem to be focused on the most was Jesus's instructions, the most common being the Sermon on the Mount. We also look at common prayers for catechism and liturgy in the early church. One of the major things of that being is the Lord's Prayer. Not as we see it developed in Luke's gospel, but in an earliest form, of Matthew's gospel, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is the breakdown we see early on in the quotation of prayers 
going back to Jesus's instruction on how to pray. It's Matthew's gospel that gets precedence in the prayer portion. We also see that in the Didache at the end of the first century on multiple occasions with the prayer being used liturgically in relation to baptisms and the Eucharist. Another part that we see commonly used in the earliest distribution of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' teaching of the end times, things to expect, his arrival, what shall be the signs of my coming. These are the developments that we find in the earliest patristics and quotations from Matthew. Sermon on the Mount, all of the discourse, and things like the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, which is the prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I believe that the earliest collection of Matthew's gospel looked this way. The Apostle Matthew, who would have been the most literate, and I will defend this, even though I've been pushed back by good atheist friends and not so good atheist friends, I do believe that the wholeness of the apostolic group were a group of guys that were partially illiterate or mostly illiterate. I'll even concede that many of them were probably illiterate almost to a completion. But I do believe, yes, I realize not all tax collectors would have been literate, but I do believe that Matthew, in the citation we see him at the tax collecting table, or in his name, Levi, leaving these tables, he would have been, as a whole, likely to have been writing out receipts, given he's at the table, issuing receipts of payment. He's not just a random collector. He's seen at a table. And if you're at the table collecting, you would have been distributing written receipts in different languages, such as Aramaic, perhaps Hebrew, Greek, and maybe even Latin. So from that perspective, and if Levi is who we believe he is, and some believe him to be a Levite, if Matthew was a Levite, he would have been a part of priesthood training and they were the most literate of any of the tribal groups because of their reading of scripture, distribution of Torah, public readings in the synagogues, and also their service to the temple. Many of them were educated in this level, and therefore I would label Levi, who would have been a part of the Levites, would have been trained in the languages and would have been familiar through his distribution of handwritten receipts, in multiple languages. Therefore, I think Matthew was literate. Going back to my main point now that I've said that, I believe Matthew was collecting the most popular sermons of Jesus, the most popular teachings of Jesus. And I believe that James had an early form of Matthew's collection and that in the epistle of James, we find a practical exegesis and application of the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's the earliest portions of James, and at the very end of James, the Olivet Discourse. He goes apocalyptic there toward the end of James. And I think that what we find in the pattern of the Epistle of James is the earliest teachings of Jesus from the collection of an earliest form of the Gospel of Matthew that was being distributed. Consider Irenaeus of Lyon, who was between 130 and 200, wrote mostly at the end of the 2nd century, 
He states this, Matthew indeed among the Hebrews in their own dialect put forth a writing of the gospel while Peter and Paul were evangelizing in Rome and founding the church. What we're seeing immediately is that Irenaeus is teaching us that Matthew would have been, in my opinion, a later development in age, not just because Papias has uh, Matthew being second in his list, but it would imply to me that Matthew would have been also after the list of others. Now, there's much debate about whether or not Luke and Matthew were written around the same time, or if Matthew was second, Luke was third. There's a lot of dispute about that. I don't really have a definitive position. There's parts of me that want to put Matthew second, but there's also parts of me that want, and see, not want, but see Matthew being after Luke's gospel it becomes difficult to say as to who is a, who is familiar and perhaps utilizing who. But according to Irenaeus, the development of Matthew took place when Peter and Paul were in Rome together. To our knowledge of history through the um, collaborating of, of the works of history and the book of Acts, Paul did not make it to Rome till sometime after 58 AD. Now he wrote a letter ahead of his arrival, the book of Romans, but then would develop his trip through the arrest to go into Rome by the end of the book of Acts, which would place us at the end of the 50s and into the early 60s. Peter would have been there before Paul, in my opinion, and Peter and Paul were there together planting churches. And he is saying that he among the Hebrews, Matthew, in their own language, produced content of the gospel that we call Matthew, and that it was taking place while churches were being founded by Peter and Paul in Rome. That would be later than Mark, after Mark. He goes on to say the gospel according to Matthew was written to the Jews. So we have an item that is being designated to a particular audience, Mark being particularly the, the Romans, Matthew, the Jews. First, they laid particular stress upon the fact that Christ should be of the seed of David. Matthew also, who still had a greater desire to establish this point, took particular pains to afford them convincing proof that Christ is of the seed of David, and therefore he commences an account with a genealogy. Now, this is from the fragments of the Lost Writings of Irenaeus, section 29. Now, what Irenaeus is telling us is that Matthew wanted to have a gospel with the genealogy. But we already learned from Irenaeus that he believes Matthew developed this later. Now, what could have happened here, and this is my hypothesis, is that what he is telling us is that the initial writing from Papias is telling us was a collection of sayings. But Matthew from Jerusalem having a gospel in the account and dialect of the Jews, wanted to not just have sayings, but defend the lineage of Jesus in a section that we see in our Greek gospel of Matthew with Jesus's bloodline connecting him to David. Connecting him to Abraham and David is what we see, but he wanted to emphasize the rights to the throne of his father, David. That's what Irenaeus is telling us here. 
According to Jerome, later on in Rome, he said, Peter went to Rome in the second year of Claudius. So again, that would have been around 43 AD to overthrow Simon Magus, who we find in Acts chapter 8. And he held the priestly chair there for 25 years, which is around 68 AD. That is the 14th year of Nero. He says this in the Illustrious Men chapter 1. So what that tells us is that Peter's in Rome between 43 and 68. Now, Irenaeus is saying that he was not there. The Gospel of Matthew was not completed until Peter and Paul were together in Rome. So we can pretty much put this Gospel of Matthew account somewhere between 58 and 68 AD when Peter and Paul are there together. And it seems like they were put to death around the same time by Nero. So this, in my opinion, Matthew would have been completed sometime in the 60s in the form that we have today, if we're taking Irenaeus and Papias and trying to piece this together. And folks, this is why I say this is a very difficult time uh, to develop an argument for Matthew's gospel. Not so much about whether it's eyewitness-based. We see unbreakable chains of evidence from one way to another way of involvement of the apostolic group in this gospel, in its early distribution. The question again becomes, what was the original form? And do we use the original form today? And if not, what evolved over time to create the Greek gospel of Matthew that we have? Now, Pontanaeus, who was at the end of the second century, he went to India to bring the gospel to those in that region, not knowing that he was beat to his his time there and that actually he was not the first to bring the gospel. It is reported that Pontanaeus went to the Indians and the tradition is that he found there among those who had been known to Christ from the gospel according to Matthew, which had preceded his coming. For Bartholomew, one of the apostles, had preached to them, had left them a writing of Matthew in Hebrew letters. So again, while the apostles are alive, Bartholomew already had a gospel. Now, what that tells me is that Bartholomew had some sort of an account in the Hebrew language, and he had already took off toward India and taught the gospel to the people there and had left some copy of the gospel of Matthew with the Indian people and then Pontanaeus, almost well over 100 years later, thinks he's making new paths to India only to find Bartholomew had already beaten him there and had left copies of a Hebrew Matthew. Now, I believe Bartholomew died pretty early on, about the same time and a little bit earlier than when Peter and Paul were killed. Now, if that is the case and Bartholomew died earlier, that means the works that Irenaeus is referring to must be a separate work when Peter and Paul were in Rome than what was in the hands of Bartholomew because he already had an account. So what's happening here? This is where it gets confusing. Here's what I think is developing, and I'm going to continue to make this point. There was an earlier Hebrew dialect, whether an Aramaic Hebrew or a combination of both, collecting Jesus's sermons. Things like the Olivet Discourse, things like the Sermon on the Mount, things like the Lord's Prayer, teachings, lagia, as Papias told us. 
And that was being circulated into the churches around the apostles in their early stage. That would be why we see James developing sermons and instructions to the scattered Jews from what seems to be Matthean teachings of Jesus, because they would have had that in their early distribution. But over time, I think what starts happening is Mark has produced a gospel for the Gentiles from Rome on behalf of Peter. Luke is compiling accounts for Paul's ministry, particularly in the East. The headquarters mother church, Antioch and Jerusalem, those two, have a gospel amongst themselves, the early development we have of Matthew, but it's not going to work outside of their jurisdiction because most people outside of that region do not have the knowledge of the Aramaic and Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew language, but that of Greek. And it would have forced the hand of the church of Jerusalem to produce an account that would make it to the known kingdom of Rome and its provinces that had a language that could be understood by all. And I think that's what ends up happening. And I think that's why Matthew's gospel is the most used in the earliest parts of the second century in comparison to any of the other gospels, especially when you look at the Didache. It is the most distributed gospel. Now, why would it be the most in distribution? And here's the reason I believe that. If it was sent from Mother Church headquarters and the apostles left in Jerusalem were sending out an account on behalf of the church and its eyewitnesses, it would be the most circulated because it was not limited to jurisdiction like Mark was to Rome. It was the least distributed at that point. And then when John started developing, it became very distributed as well. But Luke and Matthew are far more used than what we see from Mark. And even in the manuscript tradition, we have earlier attestation to the other three, Mark being the least when it comes to finding earlier survival. I think the reason for that is location. Mark's gospel is distributed up into the areas of Europe, particularly Rome. And Luke was distributed to Asia Minor and it was traveling. And if Matthew and the gospel he had, which was an earlier form, a shorter form that became evolved and developed into what we have today, became the headquarters church scripture account of Jesus of Nazareth, his lineage, his teachings, his, his miracles, his sending out, his establishing of the church. Folks, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that Matthew's gospel is the only one that reports for us on Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And then we find the wide distribution of Matthew 28, where we find the words, go into all the nations and make disciples. Why is it that Matthew includes that great commission uh, involvement for the apostles unless it was meant to look like the same way the gospel was written? Jesus' instructions, the gospel's recording, and the gospel itself is doing exactly that very thing. From that standpoint, I truly believe that the development of Matthew's gospel included these things. And that's why people say, well, we don't know if the last verses of Matthew belong in the original. Maybe it wasn't in the earliest writings of the Hebrew Aramaic Matthew, 
But maybe the church at Jerusalem made sure that part of Jesus's instructions was in the account to reflect what they're about to do with that gospel, send it with their missionaries all the way across the world with the same gospel message. That's what I believe is happening here. And let's continue to develop this point. Origen states, as having learned by tradition concerning the four gospels, which alone are unquestionable in the church of God under heaven. Folks, again, I just feel like it needs to be said here. I have never doubted the four gospels and their authenticity because the churches never put question on these four. Universally, under heaven, were received by the apostles and their churches and their disciples, if you would, and their successors. They all use the same four gospels. As Irenaeus said, four, no, no more, no less, only four. Covering the four winds of heaven, the four corners of the earth. There were only four, and as Origen tells us, they were never questioned by any of the churches across the world. That was first written according to Matthew. Here's the order. He's stating that Matthew's gospel is first, and this is where Matthew and priority people come in. But read very carefully what they are saying. Who is at once a tax collector, just so you're not confused, but afterward an apostle of Jesus Christ, who published it for those who came out of Judaism to believe in Christ and composed it in the Hebrew language and composed it in Hebrew letters. So again, Origen also believes that the first gospel published was by Matthew, the tax collector, and that the distribution of that gospel made its way to the Jews who were saved out of Judaism, and it was written to them in a Hebrew dialect. That's consistent with Irenaeus. That's consistent with Pontanaeus found all the way in India. That's consistent with Papias. The only difference is the, is the order of the gospel. But remember, Papias told us that others translated it as best as they could later. So early, it's in Hebrew. But what if it was translated? Eusebius. Matthew had preached to the Hebrews, and when he was at the point of going to others, he transmitted in writing his native tongue, the gospel according to himself and thus supp uh, supplied by writing the lack of his own presence. He's admitting that Matthew is not really developing himself into the text at all. We agree to those from whom he was sent. Catch that. From those of whom he was sent. What is Eusebius talking about? Who sent him? Again, folks, I think that the church of Jerusalem is about to create from Matthew's earliest account a fully developed and an evolved form of Matthew that was meant to be distributed from the churches. Now, Matthew's name is going to ring true on the document because he is the forerunner to the project. And I believe that. I believe he's the forerunner to the project. I believe that his work is the forerunner to this project. It was his early witness and eyewitness testimony to his teachings that he had collected while Jesus was probably alive that was being used in the church in its earliest stage. But the church is growing, the gospel spreading, and the need to take it to Greek became higher. Luke's collecting his account. 
Peter is giving his account through Mark. It's time for the mother church to send its own account on behalf of the church and its witness. But that's going to take more than Matthew to pull this off. Just like it took more than Luke talking to Paul to pull his off. Luke would have had to investigate multiple eyewitnesses in his travels with Paul, both in Caesarea and in Jerusalem, and perhaps even spending time with Peter in Rome. We don't know the full development of that when it comes to Peter. He may have ran into Peter much earlier in Jerusalem or in Antioch when he was in his travels with Paul. One thing is true. Luke is not an independent account. It required multiple eyewitnesses. I believe that out of the four Gospels, only one of them is an independent account, and that is Mark's Gospel, because Peter being the star witness preaching these sermons. And that, yes, Matthew's Gospel would have been a collection of Matthew's eyewitness statements of Jesus, his sermons, that Mark does not have in the fullest sense. And then taking those accounts, working those accounts in with Peter's testimony, the Gospel of Mark, and that's why we have so many connections between them. It's not that they're stealing or correcting. It's that they're corroborating together. They're they're working together. You have Peter's star witness you know, testimony, his star witness testimony as a major one of the eyewitnesses being a part of the inner three. He already has a published account. Of course, it makes sense for Matthew to take his account and combine that with what he learned from Peter and spent time with Peter and any other of the, the uh, individuals in the account of Jerusalem and Antioch working with those eyewitnesses to make sure there is a group approved account sent from Mother Church to all other churches. That would make the most sense of the data that we are reading. Jerome echoes this. The first evangelist is Matthew. He published a gospel in Hebrew, in the Hebrew tongue, especially for the sake of those who believe in Jesus among the Jews. Then he goes on to remind us that he is the publican or the tax collector turned to an apostle, just so we're not confused about which Matthew. He goes on to say this, that it was published from Judea. Again, that's consistent with what I'm trying to say. And he talks about it was written in the Hebrew langu language itself and that there was a copy preserved to the present day in the library of Caesarea, which Panphilus the martyr diligently collected. He said, I leave also given me to copy uh, by the Nazarenes and Berea in the city of Syria who used this work in which it is to be observed that whenever the evangelist uses testimonies of the Old Testament, he does not follow the authority of the Septuagint, but the Hebrew. And it's true. Matthew is not using the Septuagint, I would argue, in one or possibly two places, and that was on purpose. And I think that that comes from the Church of Jerusalem translating this thing over. And to distinguish the term virgin in Matthew's gospel, they specifically and intentionally went with the Septuagint translation there. But in all other places, Matthew is doing its own translation of Hebrew scripture that is separate from the Septuagint. That's another reason why I believe this gospel of Matthew we have in Greek came over from a Hebrew gospel first. But what Jerome just told us is important. 
Number one, he tells us it was in Judea that this gospel was written. Number two, it was written to those converted out of Judaism. That's consistent with what we just saw earlier. Eusebius said that, Origen said that. Three, it was still placed within the library of Caesarea and Pamphilius the martyr had collected the Hebrew gospel. And at one point, Jerome was able to receive this from the library and submit and transmit a, a, a gospel of Matthew in Hebrew or Aramaic for individuals who still wanted to use it in their area. The Ebionites, uh, the Nazarenes were using this edition. Uh, Jerome liked the Nazarenes to the Ebionites who used the gospel. The Hebrews, that's a whole nother discussion of itself. Also, Matthew did not use Septuagint when referencing the Old Testament, but the original Hebrew text. That in of itself tells us a lot to consider. So I believe in my hypothesis, these things. There's three possibilities. I'll give you mine first. Matthew wrote an account in Hebrew or Aramaic during his ministry with Jesus and afterward while in Judea around 40 AD or so. Later, publishing it in Greek and distributing it to the Gentile churches when Peter and Paul were in Rome, starting churches together around 60 AD. It was originally written in 40. Its compiled work was later developed and put together using Peter's testimony, other eyewitnesses there, making a gospel of the church of Jerusalem to be distributed to all the churches needing to be in the language Greek. That's what happened around 60 AD. The other options are Matthew wrote a gospel account in Hebrew and in Greek at the same time. This would have taken place around 40 AD to 50 AD before the apostles dispersed throughout the world. Second, another or a third option is Matthew wrote an account in Hebrew Aramaic that is primarily lost in history. Matthew had nothing to do with the Greek version attributed to his name outside of a later editor coming in using his materials uh, to write a written account that was more orderly than Mark's account. Now, I think that one is more doable than the one that says that uh, Matthew wrote a gospel account and one in Greek, one in Hebrew, and sent them out at the same time. I don't, I don't, I don't buy that one. I don't think it works out. I think the most viable is that he wrote an account in Hebrew Aramaic during his ministry when Jesus was alive around the 40s. He put that one together, sent it out. It was used, it was distributed, it was preached, it was practiced, it was a part of catechism, it was a part of liturgy, it was used to teach the prayer of the Lord, it was used to teach second coming, it was used to teach life practice like the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it was being used for. But because it was so good and needed its distribution, it needed to be sent out in a different language that beyond the Jews would need it to be in Greek. Now, the question then has to be asked amongst ourselves. Do you have any evidence of it being translated? And this is where I was challenged pretty hard lately. I was challenged in relation to producing evidence that there was a later translation. Well, Papias' statement alone, let's go back to that. Others interpreted as best as they could. And this is what I believe he was saying. He didn't clarify, and Eusebius didn't help us, who the others were. But I don't think it's an interpretation. I think the word there should be translation. 
And I think the reason for that is because we have attestation that Matthew's gospel was translated. Let me give you the examples of this. St. Athanasius of Alexandria attributed the translation of Matthew to James, the brother of Jesus. In his summary of the Holy Scriptures, he claims that James, the just, was involved in the translation of the Gospel of Matthew. Now that works. Here's why. Remember what Irenaeus said to us? Irenaeus told us that when the Gospel of Matthew was being composed, he was adamant about including a lineage. Now, I don't believe Matthew would have been able to come up with that on his own. But what if, what if the brother of the Lord, James, was involved in the project? And hear ye, hear ye. James died at the end in the 60s. Uh, he was killed. So he would have been alive when this was happening. And if it truly is a gospel sent from Mother Church, and the church of Jerusalem is trying to send out a message to all the churches to have a gospel of the Lord, as the Didache calls the gospel of Matthew when referencing its words, the gospel of the Lord, not the gospel of Matthew per se, although he was the forerunner and the worker who produced the gospel and collected it. What if the gospel of the Lord came from Jerusalem as we see it, who would have to authenticate that? Well, who's the leader of the church of Jerusalem? James the Just. What man is qualified to give Matthew a lineage that he wanted, and Irenaeus said he pushed to have, that could trace family line back to David? Well, what about a brother of the family of Jesus? What about James the Just? That's what I think exactly happened. And we have testimony through Athanasius that James was involved in the gospel of Matthew. Theodorus potentially attributes the translation work of Matthew to Barnabas. Consider these words. The relics of the apostle Barnabas were found in Cyprus under a carob tree. And on his breast, there was the gospel of Matthew written by Barnabas's own hand. It seems interesting to me that what, what may have happened here is that Barnabas, and it's believed that Barnabas was one of the 70 that went out in Luke's, or 72, depending on what Greek text you're looking at, 70 to 72 that were sent out by Jesus in Luke's gospel, it's believed Barnabas was a part of the eyewitnesses. But even if he wasn't, if he was a part of helping in the church of Jerusalem, this would actually work out. Remember, Paul and Barnabas split for John Mark. What if Barnabas was back in Jerusalem or in Antioch, and he was working with the group that was still there, and he too, with James, was one of the other eyewitnesses and individuals who was helping publish a gospel of Matthew. According to Theodorus, Barnabas was buried in, in the area of Cyprus under a carob tree with a copy of Matthew on his chest laying on his chest that he pinned with his own hand. Why would that work be so important to him that they would bury it with him? Let's continue. 
Theophylact and Epiphanius attribute the translation of Matthew to John's work, that the apostle John was involved. The gospel according to Matthew was written by him in the East with Hebraic language and letters and was later published in Jerusalem and translated with the help of John. Okay. So Theophylact and Epiphanius are telling us that John was also involved in some sort of translation of a work that Matthew had put together in the Hebrew letters, developed later and translated over in Greek. So we have the possibility of James and John and Barnabas and who knows who else. And this would actually work as well because John was still in Jerusalem for a while. It wasn't until probably after the destruction of Jerusalem that John had, uh, headed east and went to Ephesus and spent his time with Paul's churches after Paul's martyrdom and there became a leader in the eastern churches along with Andrew. So with that, it's possible in the 60s that John, yes, with Barnabas, James and others, they still would have been alive to work together to create an account in Matt, which is the Greek Matthew we have today, published from the mother church in Jerusalem to all of the Gentile churches. That is the most plausible explanation because by this point, Bartholomew had already gone to India carrying a Hebrew gospel of Matthew with him teaching the gospel there. So therefore, it just things like that, just Bartholomew going to India, having to bring a Hebrew gospel and probably interpret and translate for the Indian people what it says, because they didn't know Hebrew either, demanded that much more that the Church of Jerusalem put together a Greek gospel. So yes, there is evidence to this, and I don't think it's uh, just me making things up. Uh, I do believe that the gospel of Matthew evolved into what we have today. It doesn't mean that the Hebrew gospel, Matthew, had a bunch of stuff in it. Now, it's possible, and there seems to be implied ideas that maybe in the Hebrew gospel of Matthew, according to Jerome, and he may be getting the gospel of Hebrews mixed up with the gospel of Matthew. We don't know because there's a lot of debate just on that alone, that perhaps there was a post-resurrection appearance to James the Just by Jesus, that he actually met with his own brother, after the resurrection. Now, we can actually validate that through Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul actually tells us that he did appear to James. We don't have that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we hold, but it maybe, possibly, it was reported in the earlier gospel of Matthew that was written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Maybe. So, is it possible there are things in that gospel that we don't have today? Yeah, maybe something like that. But if it is what Papia said, a collection of sayings, folks, I think we're okay. I think those, those sayings made it over to Greek. And we have a lot of reason to believe that the work was transferred over from Hebrew Aramaic to Greek. I don't think that's just some random coincidence. Perfect examples, and I'll give you some rundowns. I don't want to go through all this. Again, you can go back in time and go look at the uh, the work I did on the two gospels, of uh, the two accounts I did of Matthew's gospel. Um, 
there are reasons to believe that this was originally written to a Jewish audience, just like the father said, and that it was produced in the area to converts out of Judaism, just as the early church father said, and that there are reasons to believe that it was transferred in language, just as Papia seems to imply. Here's reasons. One, Matthew assumed the audience understood Jewish customs, things like debates between the rabbis, etc. And again, you want more specifics, go back to the old episode on this. Two, Matthew made sure to maintain purity in Hebrew terms into the Greek writings. Here's a really quick example, Matthew 121 in the birth narrative. She will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, the Greek name for Jesus does not produce full meaning to the message given in the story. Because Jesus' name, Yesu in Greek, is a transliterated name over from the Hebrew name of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So Matthew gives a description and a definition in order to bring out the Hebrew origin, save his people from their sin. Because taking it just in Greek, just Yesus, Jesus' name, helps no one in its meaning unless you give a defining clarification of what the message was because the, the message would have been delivered likely in Hebrew or Aramaic, not Greek. And so by bringing over a description and definition, you're now helping the audience see the full meaning in Greek, what would have been heard in Hebrew or Aramaic. Here's a third reason. Aramaic origins behind the term tate in Greek, which typically is translated after this, or later on, something along those lines. So Tate is used uh, in, in relation to this. It appears 90 times in Matthew 6 and Mark 14 in Luke. Over 50 of the ones in Matthew are parallel with Mark. This would mean he introduces around 45 new Tates outside of the Markan material and it reflects a common Aramaic use of the, of the word edayan. So edayan in Aramaic is commonly used to tell narrative stories in a way like after this and then after this. And we see in the parallel passages, over 50 of the ones in Matthew that are paralleled with Mark stories, 45 times to five in Mark. 45 total because five do agree, but not all, 45, 45 additional times Matthew uses this transitional phrase, which comes from the Aramaic usage of Edayan. And therefore we find Aramaic influence that had to be transferred over that we don't see in the same amount of capacity as Luke and Mark. A fourth reason also is the Hebrew idioms and languages. There's more multiple, like in Mark, Matthew 6, good eye, bad eye. Uh, also, the way that they were doing customary washings, the idea of, of, of a rich person, the term Israel and Jew. This is a big one, folks. The term Israel is consistent with the early first century verbiage and readership. It would appear often in the Council of Jamnia, which was in 80 AD. The term Israel became scarcely used after that point and was replaced with terminology like Jews. Look no further than comparing Matthew and John. So something after the Council of Jamnia, take the Gospel of Matthew and compare it to John, which came after Jamnia. Matthew uses Israel 12 times, John 4. 
Matthew uses Jews five times. John uses it 65 times. And this is consistent with Josephus' writings in 95 AD, which often referred to them as the Jews, not as Israel. Matthew used Israel when referring to the descendants of Abraham. He used Jews when referring to words off of the mouth of Gentiles. There's multiple examples of this as well, folks. And many, many more. Um, just the, the, the verbiage, the transitions, the style, the idioms, all of this is a part of it showing to us that we have internal and external evidence that there was a Gospel of Matthew written in a Hebrew Aramaic dialect. And we have evidence that it was transferred over to Greek by demanded necessity, which seems to be around the time when Peter and Paul were in Rome, which would be in the 60s, which would mean Mark is the first Greek Gospel. Matthew may have been the first gospel. People say, well, are you Matthew in priority? Are you Mark in priority? Are we talking about in Greek? If we're talking about Greek, I'm a Mark in priority. And I think Matthew did utilize Mark. If we're talking about in order of the patristics in relation to accounts written first, the earliest Matthew would have been first before Mark. And it would have been the standard used in the church of Jerusalem and Antioch. Then came Mark's gospel. So if we're talking about it from that context, I would say I'm a Matthean priority, but it was not the same Matthew we're utilizing today. This is the difficulty about it. This is the difficulty that people debate about. This is my position on the issue. Well, again, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you for taking your time to listen to another one on Matthew. I know I did one a while ago, but I have a lot of new viewers now. Hopefully this was helpful I trust that you will do well. Keep your eyes and ears open for new episodes. Tyler and I will be releasing the last episode on Ignatius of Antioch to his letter to the Smyrnans and Polycarp. That's coming very, very soon. Thanks again for tuning in. Grace and peace to you. God bless.